You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast, and I have Dr. Andreas Werner. Uh, he's at the Institute for Cell and Molecular Biosciences at Newcastle University. So, Andreas, uh, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, uh, Richard. It's a pleasure to speak to you and uh, tell you about uh, my science and uh, my interest. Yeah, very good. So let's, let's start there. What, uh, what are you working on in particular as it relates to the, the genome, the human genome? Right. So uh, there are basically two things I'm working on. Uh, the first one is on natural antigen transcripts. Uh, that's in a larger context that's a, a very interesting phenomenon. Um, if you look at um, all the genes we have on our genome, uh, you could basically kind of uh, very neatly separate them out and have them regulated and controlled each individually. However, that's not the case. It's, um, genes are uh, often clustered and uh, they interact with each other, uh, transcription occurs in both directions, and um, that in, uh, at, at the first sight, that doesn't make sense, because what uh, it, it can happen all sorts of things. I mean, uh, transcriptional yeah. um, machineries can, can bump into each other, or um, transcripts can be formed um, that hybridize uh, to each other and uh, form double-stranded RNA, and that is really? um, basically disastrous for a cell. And nevertheless, our genome uh, has uh, quite a number of, of uh, natural antigen transcripts and, and uh, areas that are transcribed from both directions and actually form these double-stranded RNA structures. And that's what I'm working on at the moment. So um, you said some of the genes will interact with each other? Is that during transcription or just in general? It's probably not uh, right during transcription because if you have two uh, polymerase complexes moving towards each other, they, they interfere to a certain extent. And uh, you can show that very neatly in bacteria or in yeast that if you um, put to promote this uh, up and downstream of a gene, and uh, let them both go, and uh, they, the transcripts interfere, and uh, basically you, um, they they don't happen um, both at the same time. However, and in a high eukaryotic uh, genome, it's probably transcription occurs not uh, kind of switched on, and then it runs and runs and runs and runs, but it's kind of transcriptional burst, and so it's it's rather um, an intermittent um, transcription that can 
be silent to a certain extent, and then the opposite transcription uh, could take place. Um, so hmm. it, it uh, may happen at the same time, uh, but just kind of in an intermittent fashion. Um, if, if you have a given sequence of base pairs, you know, let's say it's a thousand base pairs long, then there's some kind of, uh, you know, break, and then there's more base pairs. Um, could you read the thousand base pairs, but also read, let's say, the second 500 of them plus another 500 of the next sequence and, and create a different protein? Is it, you know, is the DNA readable like that, where you don't have to only read it at certain spots, but you can take parts of areas that we would call a gene and, you know, overlap with another area and, you know, create proteins out of that transcription? Um, absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you, however, um, you have kind of very specific, it, this is regulated in very uh, precise time and uh, local specific or, or organ specific, cell specific uh, way. So, under normal circumstances, there is very little of this antisense transcription going on. And uh, secondly, it's probably a very uh, limited number of genes that actually do that. And um, you have to separate very clearly that one one uh, where this this um, antisense transcription occurs, uh, the, the basically the biological. Um, locus or the, the biological organ where that happens is, is the testes, in male testes. And uh, this is probably in a context of an evolutionary control. However, you have, uh, and that has only uh, occurred or, or being recognized in the recent maybe year, two years, you have a lot of this antisense transcription and double-stranded RNA formation in mitochondria on the mitochondrial genome, and also under pathological circumstances from repetitive areas. So that's the, the main sources of this double-stranded RNA that occurs. Hmm. So what are you, um, in specific, what are you studying? What are you hoping to figure out? The hypothesis we are, we are currently investigating is that in the context of a cell that forms these double-stranded RNAs, these almost look like a virus. And the cell has to distinguish whether that's actually a cell structure or whether it's a viral structure. And if it's a viral, it's, if it's recognized as a viral structure, it's dealt like a virus and it's, um, it triggers an immune response, an innate immune response. There are a number of, of proteins within the cell that recognizes these double-stranded RNA structures and then trigger an interferon response and an immune response and in, in, in the worst case, trigger apoptosis. So it's a very fine balance within the cell to actually keep these double-stranded RNAs either uh, very specifically localized within either the nucleus or the mitochondrion or alternatively have it quickly recognized and, and degraded. And if that control mechanism breaks, the cell has a problem. And um, now the, the hypothesis is that possibly these double-stranded RNA could be a sign of a low-level stress that occurs maybe during aging or, as I said, low-level stress. And then 
generate an immune response that could be uh, a preparation for a pathological development like uh, neurodegenerative disease or, or maybe cancer. Well, how do you know? Well, where do, when does this happen? Is there a transcription and then the RNA folds in upon itself to become double-stranded, or how does it happen? Right. Um, <clears throat> the the two examples, as I mentioned, the the repetitive sequences and um, and the mitochondrial DNA. That's kind of in the mitochondrion, you have both strands transcribed. That's that's for sure. The rep repetitive sequences in the nucleus um, are kind of uh, from a from a structural pers perspective. Um, either they are transcribed in both directions, or they are repetitive sequences that fall back maybe on each other and form double-stranded RNA. However, in both and both circumstances, these um, in the mitochondrion and in uh, the nucleus, these uh, structures are confined. They are not leaving there, the mitochondria or the nucleus. And if they do, as I said, they are they are they are quickly recognised and and degraded. So, when you, for example, by adding a specific drug that um, induces transcription, reduces DNA methylation, or or changes histone, uh, the histone code, so that you have a more permissive transcription. If you do that, uh, there is a chance that the intrinsic control system is overpowered and uh, you end up with an increase in double-stranded RNA and with an immune response triggered by these kind of, of uh, relaxed transcriptional events. And you've seen that there typically is an immune response to uh, cause the entire cell to, you know, to go through apoptosis or, or what have you seen? In the worst case, yes. In the worst case, yes. What about in a non-worst case? Does it simply uh, call it a dud transcription and just, you know, I don't know, there's like a T-cell engulf the RNA once it leaves the cell, or what, what happens? So so these these events have been recognized because um, the cells have been stressed, either treated with drugs or, or specific protective mechanisms have been suppressed so that... Um, the cells um, start accumulating these these uh, double-stranded RNAs, and and uh, under normal under normal circumstances, this this is not the case. There is there are enzymes like um, ADAR or PKR or or um, or also DICER and, and uh, that recognize these structures and degrade them and. You have to knock out uh, some of these uh, protective mechanisms to actually um, see then a immune response and uh, at the at the worst case apoptosis. And if you if you kind of extrapolate that um, towards disease, many uh, cancers and many <clears throat> many uh, neurodegenerative diseases they have an underlying um, inflammatory phenotype, and uh, that could be could come from these double-stranded RNAs. So what is your goal, is to understand how this happens and then the consequences of it, or is it to somehow yes. intervene? I mean, the, the, consequences, the consequences in a kind of an artificial, in an experimental system are relatively straightforwardly um, uh, accessible. However, in, in kind of an in vivo situation, it's very difficult to assess because the intrinsic double-stranded RNAs, they are at such a low level that without massive amplification, you can't actually demonstrate those. And uh, 
as a consequence, the, the, the tools at the moment are, are not uh, really established to have that um, kind of amplification or that, that, that specificity that we can find these double-stranded RNAs and distinguish whether they are um, confined within the uh, mitochondria and the nucleus or whether they leak out and actually uh, are uh, interfering with the cellular protective mechanisms like like PKR and and Dicer uh, and and uh, these double uh, ADAR these double stranded RNA uh, recognizing proteins. So you can observe this in uh, a lab, but you haven't observed it in vivo because you think it's a very rare event. That's correct. That's correct. Um, under normal circumstances, it's it's very hard. You may see it uh, with a specific in antibody, but uh, right only within the mitochondria. And uh, you have a number of protective mechanisms that prevent those double-stranded RNA from actually exiting the mitochondria. However, if you yeah. knock out specific protective mechanisms, then you can you can see that, and you can uh, monitor a readout, a an inflammatory response, uh, an interference response, for example, on certain cytokines that um, uh, are are representative for an immune response. But only if you if you knock out, if you reduce the protective mechanism uh, within cells. So how do you know that this occurs at all? Because you you're saying it occurs only when you have to knock out protective mechanisms. Yes, uh, that, <laughs> that's a chicken and egg question. Isn't it? <laughs> um, you you knock something out, and then you you trigger a specific response that uh, you can also trigger by infecting a cell with a virus. So that's that's basically oh, so the. So yeah, I was going to ask you so why you, this why this happens. So this is um, this this happen. Viruses can trigger this to happen. Yes. Yes. Um, Originally, originally, all these these defense mechanisms they have been described uh, as a response to a viral infection, and the, the kind of the the very the, the very key experiment is to transfect cells with a double-stranded RNA construct, and then measure the readout, which is a, an inflammatory response. And then you can trigger the same inflammatory response uh, with same characteristics when you for example, reduce the um, or increase reduce DNA methylation, increase uh, transcription of repetitive elements, or when you um, promote a a leakiness of of mitochondria, so that mitochondrial double stranded RNA leaks out into the cytosol. So that's uh, so. What, so what, the viral response is actually the the first the first. Um, step of characterizing this response. And I think the, the, the new thing here with that is that it's a, a very kind of a rare event and something like a, a very tuned machine that is functioning very well, but then when it gets old or when it gets stressed and the protective mechanisms don't um, work as well as they do kind of um, eventually, uh, this double-stranded RNA uh, builds up and uh, eventually kind of uh, breaks the camel's neck, and uh, uh, eventually an immune response is being triggered. So it's a very slow process. What's the, what's the benefit of this happening? Is there any benefit to the organism besides an alert that something is wrong, or well, is a, there another benefit? That's a very interesting question. I think 
in, in, in biology, you often have uh, a benefit on the one side, uh, on the one hand, and uh, an absolute catastrophe on the other. And uh, biology manages quite carefully uh, to, to meander between the two. And uh, the, uh, in, in, in very few cases, it comes to an absolute catastrophe, but, but uh, in, in probably in experimental cases, you can trigger that. So, um, this the this issue with double stranded RNA that has um, only arisen about two years ago, I would say, or two or three years ago, that has become a hot topic. Before that, there was okay. kind of circumstantial evidence that uh, you have antisense transcripts. So, so all these uh, genomic assessments of the human genome, etc., they have shown that loads of sense antisense transcripts are being transcribed, they potentially form double-stranded RNA, and they are most likely or, or most predominantly expressed in testes. So most likely what we know so far is that a beneficial effect of having these antisense transcripts also having the repetitive elements that can, if kind of released in a brain cell or so, have detrimental effects. In testes, there are regulated events that kind of release those um, regulatory, uh, sorry, these repetitive elements. And um, that has to be seen in, a, in an evolutionary context so that, that um, these repetitive elements actually contribute to generate variability, novelty in a sperm cells. And because we produce so many sperm cells, we can afterwards deal with that variation that in most of the cases is detrimental, so we can just sort them out. If, and the hypothesis is that um, these double-stranded RNAs help to assess and to scrutinize the genome after all these kind of um, events have happened that create variability, that um, a basic playing field for evolution. Well, I would think that so the would, repetitive sequences are there for redundancy and to make sure all the systems are running well, but you said they actually <laughs> could be a source of variation? Yes, yes, true. True. I mean, uh, again, the, the, these repetitive sequences, we have them, and um, what do they do? I mean, the, the, there's no, no obvious sense for, for having... Um, a vast majority, I mean, more than 50% of our genome is just, just kind of repetitive uh, sequences that don't cope for proteins. They don't, apparently, they, they don't have a biological function. And um, it, however, it, it, if, you, if you look at it, the way that um, these repetitive sequences are actually new material to generate new genes, then uh, you have a huge a resource on the one hand of genetic material, that's a very rare event, but in addition to that, these repetitive sequences, they have regulatory power, so they have transcription and enhancer activities, and when they kind of um, reintegrate somewhere, they may influence the expression of the neighboring genes, and that's probably another um, a way of how these repetitive sequences actually can interfere and create novelty within a genome. 
again, that happens at the very low incidence, at the very low level, but it is a very important um, step within uh, human sperm development, for example, and, and uh, higher eukaryotic sperm development, um, that these repetitive elements actually have a window of retransposition and uh, and you're saying that this this happens predominantly in the mitochondrial DNA and in and around the mitochondrion or is it happening in the nuclear DNA um I apologize I probably explained that not very well okay the, the I, I I have to separate the two so the mitochondria they form double-stranded RNA and that's a consequence of how mitochondrial DNA is transcribed and that's very very different from the nuclear situation. As a byproduct they produce double-stranded RNA which is which I don't really uh, don't see a, a reason or a benefit of creating that double-stranded RNA but it happens. And the only reason why this mitochondrial double-stranded RNA kind of came into focus is because it is there. And if it leaks out, it triggers this viral, this immune response, and may feed into a an inflammatory response. The, well, the, reason, happens, I, the reason I ask is that, um, okay. I guess, supposedly mitochondrial DNA has passed through the mother and not through the father. So yes. if this happens to a woman... I wonder if it affects her epigenetically and if that gets passed on, especially because, like I said, her mitochondrial DNA gets passed on to the offspring mm -hmm, mm -hmm, versus if it mm -hmm. happened in a man. That's why I thought about that. That's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. Um, I don't think that's known. I don't think that's known how how the the, the inheritance of the double-stranded RNA, I don't think that's... <laughs> and also, too, like, I don't know the... Um, you know, sperm are produced you know, all the time, but eggs, I mean, supposedly they're, you know, a woman is born with all her eggs. And I mean, I've recently read that she may produce more, but I wonder if, um, you know, the consequence of that is, is it, is it happened more in men because there's more uh, cell divisions and more creations of new cells, you know, the spermogenesis, or is it, uh, is it less likely to happen in women because they undergo I don't, you know, it's the, it's the same cells that are just aged, so it didn't happen when they first were formed, so it doesn't happen after. Yeah, I think I think you're 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 absolutely right there. That because the the, the limited number, a finite number of egg cells are are available, um, there is very little room for variation there because with a number of off, offspring, that is is what is it one, two, three. Maybe five or, or in the old times uh, ten, but but certainly not not the numbers of uh, bacteria or so of of lower um, of of lower complex organisms. The, the number of offspring they they generate is gigantic. The the quality of reproduction has to be absolutely exquisite to um, produce something. You have one or two goes, and 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 that's it. So basically, the the whole question of variation and of creating something new has been outsourced towards uh, sperms because we we produce uh, billions of sperms, and that allows us to kind of exploit or have a, a, a limited kind of playing field for variation. 
and that's probably why why um, sperm cells have have these um, demethylation phase and and uh, higher higher variability as compared to eggs. Okay. Um, have you seen that? Um, is there any permanent creation of double-stranded RNA? I mean, is this uh, something that uh, can be modulated by epigenetic changes and stay permanent or even be heritable? I don't think I I perceive double-stranded RNA in in the the evolutionary context as a tool and not necessarily as a messenger. It's a tool to distinguish uh, whether something is um, transcribed correctly and folded correctly. It's a, it's a, it's a, a tool to scrutinize the quality of the genome after recombination, after uh, retransposition of transposon, etc. And I don't perceive it as an agent for um, inheritance to, to, to be passed I guess on. it's never a beneficial effect. It's just it's always negative, right? No, I think I think you can't you can't put it in a in a way like that. I think if double stranded RNA was only negative, uh, nature would have selected against it, and that's not that's clearly not the case. Then we would have uh, arranged our gene very nicely, kind of split from each other and separated, and and uh, and, and never never uh, converge in transcription or so that that could potentially give rise to double stranded RNA. And that's clearly not the case because um, rather the contrary, we tend, uh, it's, it's not a very clear tendency, but, but uh, it's a tendency that uh, we rather have more double-stranded RNA and, and, and gene loci that are transcribed in both directions that potentially form double-stranded RNA, that this is actually a, a somehow beneficial uh, arrangement of genes. So have you studied this in human models or mouse models, or have you seen the, in, in in all the appearance sorts, of this in, in multiple creatures? In 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 all sorts, we we um, do research in mouse, and we do that. Uh, we look particularly uh, in testes because there uh, we think that's where the natural situation, the natural, the biology happens for double-stranded RNA formation and for for a potential regulatory or, or a, a potential biological role for, for double-stranded RNA, RNA that is in sperm. So we do that in mouse. We look in cell cultures and um, on, on a larger genomic basis, but um, interventions we do in cell cultures. And this is, this is very, very difficult because if you look at Two genes, or a gene that is transcribed in the opposite direction of another one, and you have two RNAs that potentially interfere with each other. You take a model system and you start either overexpressing one of the components. You can bet that the other one is either downregulated or, or, or stabilized, and uh, you uh, knock out the other one, and you can bet that something happens to uh, to the partner RNA as well. So it's a very Difficult, a uh, very difficult model to actually investigate on a, on a mechanistic basis. Mm, gotcha. <laughs> so, what, what do you see as the uh, what do you see as like the near term future of your work? What are you hoping to uh, elucidate, maybe in the next year or so? Within the next year, um, I would hope that we can find a 
very sensitive assay that we can find double-stranded RNA at the low level in cellular location where it doesn't belong to, so not in the mitochondria or not in the nucleus, but in the cytoplasm. And that we can demonstrate that, find that, uh, hopefully even quantify that, and find a predictor for a uh, for diseases, for degenerative diseases. Do you and know of anyone that's been able to make a... Uh... Oh, good question. Do you, do you know of anyone that's been able to make a tiny sensor that can be put inside a cell's cytoplasm to monitor one cell? Has anyone ever done that? Um, <laughs> I would not like. Well, yes, a sensor. A sensor. There's an antibody that recognizes double-stranded RNA, uh, so we're going to use that. But uh, you can also use uh, potentially protein or protein fragments that uh, recognize double-stranded RNA, so that you 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 probably uh, need a parallel detection or, or, or kind of an enforcement uh, between two methods of detection to, to actually be specific enough. So, so yes, that would probably kind of uh, come close to a sensor that you put into a cell. I mean, then after it's obviously, um, the question is, how do you, if you look at brain cells, I mean, it's, it's not really feasible that you test a, an in vivo brain cell of, of a patient. So, is this uh, kind of degenerative process uh, also happening in other cells that are better accessible uh, as compared to brain cells, for example? That's a big, that's a big mm. challenge. So, but okay, I think so, the, yeah, the, I kind of interrupted you. So, over the next year, again, what do you what do you see yourself being able to accomplish to move the research forward? I think right. So, on the on the biological side, in testes, we hope to have a clearer idea of where, on which genomic, in which genomic loci these double-stranded RNAs are formed, um, under what circumstances, and hopefully uh, have a better understanding on a natural basis what these antisense transcripts are good for, and uh, the double-stranded RNA that is formed between the antisense transcript and the same transcript. With respect to directly monitoring double-stranded RNA in somatic cells, um, as I said, I, I hope towards probably uh, having uh, a method to, at least in a cell culture system, to stress cells, maybe age cells, and then show that double-stranded RNA actually plays a role in old or stressed cells and is a, a potential readout for the level of stress or the level of aging, the progression of aging uh, that happens in, in these cells. Right. Well, very good. <laughs> um, any, uh, any, any final thoughts or things that you want to uh, express? I feel like I asked you some, uh, some tough questions. So any, uh, <laughs> I mean, um, I think it's, it's, since I since I started with uh, RNA, I mean, I, when I when I first discovered these antisense transcripts and, and kind of, of unusual transcriptional events, that was in 1995 or so. So they weren't any genome sequenced, and uh, I just thought, well, if a gene is transcribed in both directions, and uh, this is this is actually quite quite unbelievable, and uh, 
if a cell does that, there, there must be a reason. And uh, I, I started studying this and, uh, and then came the human genome sequence and, and suddenly people reported antisense transcripts all over the place and uh, non-coding RNAs, etc. And uh, it, it has been a, a, a whole revelation and a whole revolution in, 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 in new concepts and, and absolutely new findings. And I think it's absolutely brilliant that um, after a time where you have the impression that, well, I mean, we, we basically know what happens. We know the genes, et cetera, um, how, how a cell works, et cetera, that basically we have a, a complete overhaul of a perception, what the gene is, what, how a gene is regulated, how RNA works, et cetera. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating how new aspects of this whole RNA world and uh, keep popping up and uh, it's a never-ending story and uh, I look forward to further to further uh, exciting uh, new developments and new uh, discoveries. Well, that's great. Well, Andy, I appreciate you coming. What, what's the best way for folks to uh, get in touch or to find out more about your work? Um, you can always uh, write me an email. That's probably the best um, the best way to contact me. Um, my email address is at the University of Newcastle. Uh, you'll find it uh, when you you find me via Google. It's probably might be easy if you uh, Google my name and uh, Andy, and uh, if you add Tango, Argentine and Tango to it. That's my second hobby. <laughs> then oh, cool. uh, I'll I'll uh, pop up. Um, I can. Do you want me to spell out my uh, email address? Yes, please, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay, that's Andreas dot Werner. That's W E R N E R at N C L dot A C dot U K. And I'm more than happy to reply and discuss and uh, get in contact with uh, everyone who is interested. And uh, yeah, please, please do contact me and uh, give feedback and. Uh, Tell me what you think about uh, these interesting double-stranded RNAs. Excellent. Well, Andy, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's very, very. It's my pleasure, and uh, I hope uh, it's it's uh, that whole initiative is a success. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.